Our scripture reading today is from Romans 1, 18 through 32. That is page 939 in your pew Bibles. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Before I start, I just want to give a word of thanks to uh, Pastor John. Uh, you may not realize it, that, but when he picks out the songs, he has in mind the scripture. And if we were to give the sermon first and then sing the songs, you'd say, ah, that's why he picked that one. That's about the wrath of God. That's about righteousness and all those kinds of things. So thank you for diligently helping us to hear the word of God through the hymns, the songs that we sing. I'm sure you've had someone come to you and say, I've got good news and I've got bad news. What would you like to hear first? All right, and I won't take a survey. But the Bible comes to us and after, in the book of Romans, after giving us a little overview of good news, really lays on the bad news. In Romans, in the first three chapters, God tells us the bad news first. Why? So that we see our desperate need of the good news of the gospel. 
As we see, Romans, as the whole gospel is, is good news for sinners and good news for saints. God comes to us and said, you're worse than you think you are, and you need to know that so that you can appreciate and be in awe of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I have really prayed over, wrestled, and gone over this passage and how I'm going to present it more times than usual for a passage because it's a difficult one. It's a challenging one. And today, as you're hearing this, I think we tend to fall into one of two categories. Either we say, this doesn't apply to me because I'm not in the bad news category. I think of a Muslim doctor that I've been interacting with whose view is that we make mistakes, but then you ask God forgiveness and everything's okay. We're not so bad. Or I think of many of my neighbors whose lives are vibrant and healthy and good, and they would say, this passage that Mystery, that uh, mystery just read, Kate just read is, is not about me. This is about those really bad people. That's one reaction. And by the way, we can fall into that in the church. We know we were sinners that came to Christ, but we tend to think this passage is not about me anymore. The other reaction is to say, this is about me, and I'm offended that you think this is a sin. <laughs> That's what a lot of the world out there thinks. How dare you lump me in this category of people who are deserving of God's wrath. But God tells us clearly, we're going to see today and for the next few weeks, Lord willing, up through chapter 3, verse 20, that we have all sinned grievously, aggressively, deliberately against a holy God, and therefore we are deserving of his punishment we fall under his wrath. So, God tells us the bad news first so that we will say, Lord, I desperately need your good news in Christ. Romans is a book of good news for sinners and for saints. Well, let's look at our first main point is our own wickedness condemns us. Our own wickedness condemns us. Perhaps as the passage was read, and the very first verse, verse 18, talks about the wrath of God has been revealed. And for some of us and for others, they would say, well, wait a minute. The wrath of God? I mean, isn't that an Old Testament God? Isn't Jesus the God of love? Well, I haven't read the book of Revelation, that's for sure. But we, we tend to think of God's love, and, and it's true. He is a God of great love. But we think, how could God bring his wrath upon people. And the scripture here gives us three clear reasons why we all deserve God's wrath outside of salvation in Jesus Christ. The first reason is because we suppress the truth about God. We suppress, we hold down the truth about God, and we refuse to give him thanks. This is the first reason we deserve his wrath. We suppress the truth about God, and we refuse to give thanks to God. Verses 18 to 21. God gives us clear evidence in all of creation that he exists and what his character is. And he attaches an idea that, you know, when you send an Amazon gift or something, there's a little thing, if it's a gift, that says, who's it from, you know? So 
Lynn and I will send to our grandchildren. And it's from us, right? So that the person can say, oh, I know who to thank. God builds into creation not only the idea that he exists and who he is, his character, but that he is a God that we ought to thank for all he has done. But what does the scripture tell us? The scripture tells us that we suppress, we hold down the truth about God that's clearly evident in the creation and we refuse to give him thanks. You know, we look at the vast universe, the Milky Way, all the stars, and what do we do? We say, oh, it just got there? It was just a big bang? Well, where did it all come from? Or we breathe air, we enjoy good food, and we, we look at bodies that mostly work most of the time. Are we thankful or do we just take it for granted in that way? What the world does when they see the clear creation of God is they say, I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. You know, perhaps you've done this or your kids do it when you're trying to tell them that something they ought to do or something that's right. And what do they do? They put their ears, their hands over their ears. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I don't want to hear it. That's the natural bent, fallen reaction of men and women in the world. We suppress, we hold down the truth and we say, I know it's there, but I don't want to acknowledge it. We know that we should be giving thanks to the creator God who is our great provider, but we don't want to acknowledge that he exists because otherwise we'd have to fall down before him and say, you're God and I'm not. Can you imagine a husband who comes home from work and his dear, wonderful wife has said, I'm going to make his favorite dinner tonight. And she she's working on this meal and setting the table. And he comes in from work, how you doing? Sits down, gobbles the food down, and never says a word of thanks to his wife. Do you think the wife deserves to be a little bit upset and angry with that husband? Yeah, yeah. How much more when God provides all that we need and people fail to give him thanks? You know, even at Thanksgiving time, there's phrases, be thankful. Well, to who? Who are you thankful for? Or just a few weeks ago, we went through Christmas, and some of you got elaborate, wonderful gifts for your kids or grandkids or nephews and nieces. And you know, sometimes some of the kids, they just want to rip the next, what's the next one? What's the next one? And there's no sense of, who gave me this gift? You know, there's no, oh, thank you, mom. Thank you, dad. Thank you, grandfather, whoever it is. But we, the scripture says, we are like that. God gives us so many good gifts and we fail to stop and say, you are the giver of good gifts. You are the God who is out there. People deserve God's wrath because we suppress and hold down the truth about God and we refuse to give him thanks. The second reason is we exchange God's glory for created images. We exchange God's glory for created images. Verses 23 to 27. And if you look at verses 23 to 27, three times 
three times, verse 23, verse 25, and then 26 and 27, Paul tells us that sinful mankind has exchanged something that is good and beautiful and right and true and exchanged it for something that is evil and false and is a cheap imitation. Why do people do that? Why do they exchange the glory of God, which is evident even on a day like today, for a cheap idol, for an imitation, for something that's man-made? Why? Here's what God says. He goes, you know, you know I'm creator of the universe. Deep inside, in your conscience, and this is true of every person out there, They know that God exists, and they know in their conscience that God is true. They know that he is the immortal, imperishable, indestructible, supreme being. And they know everyone is wired, hardwired to know that they ought to give thanks and worship God. But instead, mankind has foolishly chosen to worship imposters and fraudulent many gods. And so we worship the gift of sex instead of God, the creator of sex and beauty and love. We give our energies to fantasy pictures of men and women. We devote ourselves to the images of, might be stepping on toes here, we give ourselves to the images of eagles, lions, and ravens. we might bow down to the bulls and the bears of Wall Street. We surrender our wills and our desires to counterfeit ideas, which a creeping serpent has tempted us with. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. My friends, would you agree, that's a foolish exchange. That's a tragic exchange, no wonder We who do this deserve the wrath of God. And then there's a third reason for God's wrath. Another exchange, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Verse 25, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Again, how foolish and rebellious this is. We dumped on the husband just before with an analogy. Now let's talk about a foolish wife. Imagine a wife who's married to a very rich, successful man, and on every birthday, on every anniversary, he gets her gold and jewels and emeralds, bracelets, rings, necklaces, each worth thousands of dollars, okay? And when she's not wearing them, she puts them in the jewelry box. And one day, she decides to take that box worth tens of thousands of dollars and go and exchange it for cheap imitation pearls and fake plastic rings. And the husband hears of that and says, are you out of your mind? You exchanged something that was beautiful and valuable and full of love for me, and you exchanged it for these trinkets that are worth a dollar at most? Have you lost your mind? And that's what God is saying to us in Romans 1. When you exchange the truth about God, who he is, and you exchange it for a lie and worship what is created and put yourself on the throne, that is a tragic and foolish exchange. And God says, it is no wonder that you are coming under condemnation for doing that.
And to top it off, in verse 32, at the end of this passage, we are not only people who practice these wicked deeds, even though we know they deserve God's judgment. And I'll stop there just for a minute. When you sin, there's at least part of your conscience, part of your background that's saying, this is wrong, right? Before you're looking at pornography, before you're thinking about cheating on your wife or husband, before you're going to cut corners on the taxes or whatever it is, something is telling you this is wrong, but you go ahead and do it anyway. You deliberately know you're sinning, but you want to do it. Verse 32 says, you not only know it comes under God's judgment, but you approve and encourage and applaud those who do the same. It's one thing to drag yourself into sin. It's another to enable another generation to say, yes, go ahead and do this, even though you know it's sinful. Do you see, my friends, three reasons in this passage why our own wickedness condemns us. We deserve his condemnation outside of Christ. The second main point is that God's judgment is righteous and fitting. God's holy, wrathful judgment upon us is completely righteous and it's apt, it's fitting, it's just. Let's consider again three reasons why the condemnation of God upon sinners is just and right. First reason is that God's just character demands it. God's just and holy and righteous character demands that he punish evil and wickedness and sin, right? My friends, if God is holy and just, and he is, then he must unleash his righteous wrath against all wickedness and unrighteousness. He must punish sin. Think of it. If God were to allow evil to go unpunished, could he still be a holy and righteous God? Would not have he lowered his standards? Another analogy for us. Suppose someone commits an awful, terrible crime, an assault against you or a loved one in your family. And the police catch this person, they bring him to justice, he has his day in court, you're there in the court, and the judge says, yes, you are guilty. And then the judge says, but there'll be no fine, no prison sentence, you're free to go. What would you do in the courtroom? You would stand up and say, that's unjust. That's not fair. This person deserves punishment. They're guilty and you know it. Where is the justice in this system? And there are many people in America and in the world who cry out that way. There is no justice. And our only hope at times like that is to say, but God is a just God. And at the end of time, when Christ comes back, all will be made right. My friends, if we feel that way in a human courtroom scene, that we want a judge to bring justice to the guilty, can you see why God, who is the holy judge, the perfect righteous judge, he has every right as a holy God to bring wrath and punishment upon the guilty sinner. The second reason is that we are without excuse, verses 19 and 20. All of us are without excuse in falling under God's judgment. Every one of us is born with a PhD in rationalization and making excuses, aren't we? 
I mean, kids at two years old, they, it was my sister who did it. It was your fault. You left the room for 30 seconds, right? Adam and Eve, right? The woman you gave me. Oh, it's a snake. It, we are great at rationalizing. And God comes to us and said, no, no. There's no excuse that holds up in my court. Why? Because I know, God says, that mankind sins deliberately, aggressively, with malice against not only my commandments, but against my character. We are, from the fall, from the sin of Adam and Eve, we are hardwired with a depraved nature that sins and then tries to make rationalizations for it. Now, in this way, I have heard people say to me, and I'm sure it's been true for you, if you tried to share the gospel with other people, they'll say, well, God isn't fair to condemn people who've never heard of the gospel. What kind of God is that? I mean, there are people who've never heard of Jesus, and that's why their missions exist. That's why we send out and pray for people to go to bring the gospel to the world. But they say, there are all these billions of people who've never heard the gospel. How can God condemn them? Or when I was growing up as a teenager sometime in the church, it was, what about the heathen in Africa who have never heard? What about the people in the far jungles who've never heard the gospel? How can God condemn them? And that's when I smile and I'd say, number one, God has built into creation all the evidence that people need to know that there is a God and he can draw them to himself in any situation. And then I tell them the story of Gus Marway. Many decades ago, Lynn and I spent a summer in mission work in Liberia, West Africa. And there we met Bishop Gus Marway and he told us his story. He grew up in the jungles of Liberia, West Africa. The gospel had not penetrated to his village or his area at all. But he told me, he said, I knew from the stars that there was a God. Not just one God, but not just any God, but the God. And then at age 13, oh, by the way, he said, and my father was a cannibal. I mean, like, he was like, this is really remote. At age 13, he and a cousin walked 40 miles to the nearest town, and in that town, they heard a bell ringing. It was a church bell, and they went in. They had no idea what a church was. They had never heard the gospel. And they sat down, and the preacher preached the gospel, and Gus Marway said, that's the God I know from creation. The same God that you're preaching there. And God changed his life around. He started getting an education. He went to first grade at age 13, went on to high school, college, seminary degree, and then came back to Liberia and ministered there. And so when people tell me, what about the heathen in Africa? I say, let me tell you about Gus Marway. And he's just one incident, one story of millions where God, through his word, through the creation, through satellite, through different means, brings the gospel to his people in any situation. So God is not unfair. God cannot be blamed in this way. The third reason is that God, that God gives, his judgment is righteous and fitting, is that God gives us over to our own perverted thinking and desires. When God brings judgment, he is simply giving us over to what we wanted, to our own 
thinking and desires. This is verse 24 to 32. And I realize this is a challenging, difficult passage here. We'll talk about that as we go through. Would you picture a hill? And on the top of this hill, there's one tree. And it so happens that on this hill, the wind is constantly blowing. Some of you hiked up to Mount Washington. <laughs> there's not many trees growing at 6,200 feet on top of Mount Washington, but that's a place where the winds can easily be 100, 150, up to 231 miles an hour. But can you imagine a tree, a sapling planted there, if it could survive for a while? What would that tree look like? It would be bent this way as the wind is constantly blowing it. It would be twisted and deformed. And God says, that's what happens to our minds and our hearts and our wills and our conscience as we continually sin against God. It's not just that the checklist against us is there. It impacts, it distorts, it twists our thinking, our heart, and our wills. Scripture says our thinking becomes darkened and futile. And this is why it is hard to reason with somebody who is in this category because you're, you're in different universes almost. Everything you say, they see it in a different twisted way. My friends, the problem here is not an intellectual one. Now, there are many brilliant PhD scientists, philosophers, and others who are atheists and agnostic. The problem is not an intellectual one. The problem is a deeply spiritual one. As we said earlier, the problem is that people know there's a God, and they know something about him, and they know what he requires, but they deliberately hold that truth down and suppress it and refuse to give thanks to God because they want to remain on the throne of the universe in their lives. And because we suppress God's truth and because we exchange his glory for created things, therefore, God, who is so patient, so persevering with us as sinners, hallelujah that he is, there is a time when God says, okay, I remove the restraints from your life. If this is what you want, if you want to live in the moral cesspool of your decisions, I will let you go in. We might call this the moral law of entropy. And you're saying entropy? You know, laws of thermodynamics. I'm going to bring it home here. The law of moral entropy says things left to themselves will go from bad to worse. All right? And here's the example. You put a dozen kids in a room, and the toys are all neatly on the shelves, right? And you come back an hour later. What will the room and what will the kids look like? All right? Chaos. Because moral entropy is at work. Things do not get better left to themselves. All right? And that's what's happening in the universe. God says, I, by my common grace, by my mercy and goodness even to sinners, are holding back so that people are not as bad as they could be because if God removed the restraints, it would be complete chaos. Notice three times in verse 24, 26, and 28, it says, God gave them up to their own sinful desires. 
to their perverted thinking. That means God abandoned them. He says, I have been patient with you. I have been enduring. Think about God with the Israelites in the wilderness, how patient he was. Think about God with the prophets, how patient. Think about how patient God was probably with you. (laughs) And even now, how patient he is. But there is a time when God says, I will remove the restraints of my common grace and give you over to what you desire. I will give you over to your foolish thinking and your depraved minds. I'd like you to picture another hill. And on top of this hill, there are a number of uh, tractor trailers, okay? Fully loaded tractor trailers. And each one of them has a driver in it, and they're revving the engine. And it's at the top of the hill, and from there, there is this curving, steep decline road that goes and twists and so forth. And they want to go down this road. And at the very bottom of this road, after a few miles, there used to be a bridge across a river, but the bridge is washed out. And so now, at the end of this road, there is a river you would plunge into to your certain death. And people, the drivers, are in these trucks. And there's, we want to go down this hill. We want to experience the thrill of 120 miles an hour down this. And God is the mechanic, so to speak. And God is saying, guys, I'm going to put your brakes on. I'm going to pull the brakes. And he puts these big blocks in front of their tires. And he says, I want to keep you from destroying yourselves. And they're cursing at him out the window. They're throwing bottles at the mechanic, even as he's preventing them from going down the hill. And after a few hours of this, God says, you want to go down the hill? You want to go to your certain death? Okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you up to your own desires. And he takes, he, he just walks away and lets them take the blocks out of the, from the tires, lets them take the brake off. And they go careening down this hill. And they're cursing at each other. They're cutting each other off. And if they make it to the bottom, they go off and are killed. That's a picture of God graciously trying to restrain people from their sin, from the effects of all they do. And yet, there's a time when God says to individuals and to nations, to cultures, enough, I will give you over to your own desires. Michael Card, in one of his songs, says, um, God simply speaks the sentence that they have passed upon themselves. God speaks the judicial sentence that they have already passed on themselves. And so, God's wrath of us is righteous, and it is fitting And it's what we're even asking for. Let me focus for a minute on verses 26 and 27. Very controversial about women exchanging natural relations with men and for for other women and the men doing the same with other men. Just reading these two verses in a public venue could get me accused of hate speech. But we need to understand the context here. God is telling us not just about homosexuality and lesbianism. Did you look at the rest of those verses? Slander, gossip, being disobedient to parents. 
Paul's just saying all of these things are the sinful acts that people are committing. But God is telling us clearly that all these sinful acts are symptoms of our rejection of God's truth. In other words, immorality always follows idolatry. People are first idol makers, right, before they are covenant breakers. People have said, I want to follow another God, and then a lifestyle flows downstream from that. Or we could say in terms of a stream, the spring, the wellspring, the origin, the lake where the river starts is polluted. And so when you drink it downstream, there's no hope of anything different. Immorality follows idolatry. Every sin, whether gossip, disobedient to parents, or sexual deviancy, is downstream from a heart which has already been bent and darkened by rebellion against the holy God. And so, yes, there are sins that seem more bold, that seem more outstanding, but remember, every sin is downstream from a heart that says, I want to be God myself. Immorality is downstream from idolatry. And my friends, as you look at our country, we are so far downstream away from God and his goodness that we could say we have gone spiritually insane. Spiritually, our culture is insane. We are so far down that steep hill that the trucks are going down that leads to death that we are close to, if we have not already lost our minds. Think of it. Men think and live out as if they're women, and women think and live out as if they're men, and the society affirms that? Not only that, but verse 32, it talks about not only do they know these things are bad, but they approve of those who do them. We have those in authority are saying to our young people, go ahead and mutilate yourself so that you can be happy in a new identity. This is insanity. We have lost our minds, and we need to know. But this has all followed from the sin of idolatry. We refuse to acknowledge God and give thanks to him. But let me be quick to add that we need to show grace and mercy to those who are struggling in these areas. Same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, because in most cases, these are symptoms of a much deeper heart struggle. These, that our gossip, our disobedience to parents, our slander, everything is a symptom of a deeper heart issue. Last summer, I went to the pride celebration in our township. It said, everyone welcome, so I took them up on it. I prayed a lot, went with a few other Christians, and I just went to, some of them were teenagers, some of the mothers of those who were changing their identity and so forth. I just said, tell me your story. Tell me what happened, tell me if you're happy and so forth. And some opened up, and some I was able to give some scripture to and pointed to Jesus. Most of the people were, obviously put their shields up and 
were defensive. But here's what I learned. There's a lot of hurting people there. And although the outside uh, is like, we're proud to be this or that. And by the way, it could be, we're proud to be conservatives. We're proud to be this or that. There's a hurting heart in there. I saw moms who, whose daughters were abused and therefore the daughter now is struggling with her sexual identity and the mother is understandably the mother bear, right? And she says, whatever my kid is happy at, I'm gonna stand up for her. And so it was an opportunity just to listen and love and say, I'm not here to change your political views. I'm here to share the love of Jesus with you. And one of them said, well, if we all came to your church, would you accept us? So, Trinity, get ready sometime. <laughs> would we? Would we welcome them and say, come, come. We are fellow strugglers, and we know upstream what the real deep problem is. We need to offer everyone love and understanding and true hope to realize that the ultimate problem is their idolatry, their turning from God and then to offer the good news of Jesus Christ to them that can transform sinners and bring forgiveness and salvation, which leads to the third point. We'll be shorter here. There is hope in the good news of Christ. There is hope, hallelujah, in the good news of Jesus. God gives us the bad news, and then he says, but there's good news. And it's only when we really say that bad news applies to me that we cry out and say, hallelujah, thank you, God. Even this morning as we come to the Lord's table, that you saved a wretch like me. These 15 verses are among the darkest in the whole Bible, and we might say, is there any hope? But again, God says, I want to show you the desperateness of your darkness so that you will come to the good news of Jesus. Do you remember our first introduction sermon in Romans? We talked about the cracks in the wall. And if your house has cracks, do you want to just try to spackle and paint over them? Or do you want to find out if there's a real problem in your foundation that needs to be dealt with? And God says, if you're struggling with those cracks, it's because there's a foundational issue with you and God. And that's what Romans speaks to. That's what the gospel speaks to. My friends, the problem is that our solutions to problems is too shallow because we haven't understood the depths of the problem. We try to put a Band-Aid on something that is cancerous. And so Romans 1, 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. Mercifully show us our depravity, how twisted and bent we are, so that we will say, Lord, I'm a wretch. I am lost. Save me and help me. And if you realize that this bad news is your story, then there is good news. There is a lifeguard, a true lifeguard, who will rescue you out of the moral cesspool of your own doing. There is a savior who gives you his perfect righteousness and takes your filthy rags, those merit badges you try to earn before God, and he says, I will take them on the cross and I will give you my perfect righteousness. And my friends, if you are wrestling with addictions, with idolatry, if there are sins that are besetting in your life that maybe few people know about, God says, I can break through 
And you say, how do you know that? Because he broke through in the resurrection. He conquered sin and death and Satan's grip. And so we have a victorious Savior who not only saves us, but rescues us from whatever idolatry and immorality has trapped us. Hallelujah. This is the good news for sinners. Amen? That's the hope for the individual. Very briefly, is there hope for our nation? Wow, only God knows. But I'm encouraged by a small book in one of the minor prophets in the Bible, the book of Jonah. You know the story. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. The Ninevites were the worst, they were the Hamas, Isis, Boko Haram of that day. They were a bloodthirsty, fierce people. And God says to Jonah, go and preach and tell them they're going to be destroyed. And of course, Jonah doesn't want to go because he thinks if they repent, he doesn't want these people hanging around. But he goes and repents. And what happens? From the king all the way to the slave, they all say, wow, this is God's word. We better fast and pray and maybe God will be merciful. And so for, they do. And God says, I'm going to have mercy on these people. And God did not destroy them for a long time. So there is hope for Nineveh. There was hope. There is hope for America. But what does it take? Well, obviously it takes the sovereign work of God. But God works through us. And one of the things he calls us to do, as we were doing, praying even this morning before the service, Lord, would you bring revival to our land? It's going to start with us, not the world out there. And as you look at the history of America, there have been these great awakenings. And when they happen, it's just, this is of God. I think the last one we had was about 60 years ago almost in the Jesus Revolution. And a number of you got saved in that time period. Let us pray for another Jesus Revolution starting with our churches. So prayer, desperation, Lord, work. But here's the other way that God works, and that's that we are willing to go to the people like the Ninevites. We're willing to go to the people who have very different lifestyles than us and share the good news, but we first listen to them. Once or twice a year, I go down to Planned Parenthood in Center City, 12th and Locust. And I go down there to a place where, sadly, there are some four or 5,000 babies who are killed. And there are young women and men who get hormones at teenagers and are made into a different gender without their parents knowing it. It's a place of darkness. But I go there and I often have a little sign that just says, Jesus heals and forgives. All right? Doesn't that sound kind of, you know, I'm not trying to be political. Jesus heals and forgives. Well, it's also in the middle of the neighborhood there. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics when you say Jesus heals and forgives. But you know, I love being there. People are angry with me. They come up into my face and they're, and I just listen and I try to smile and I try to tell them that Jesus heals and Jesus forgives. In some small way, God calls us to say, go to those people. Pray for revival here, but bring the gospel to those who you think are most against it because they're the people who most need it, and perhaps will hear it before others will. I leave you with this. Remember that the gospel has the power 
to save and to transform. And think about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. It sounds like, okay, if you do these things, you're bad and no chance to get in the kingdom of God. But then you know, in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you. Wow. Wouldn't you like to be preaching in Corinth and look out and say, you were an idolater, you were an adulterer, you were stuck in a homosexual life, you were this, and I was this, and such, we were that people. I was that person. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. God's arm is not too short to save anyone. And so let us pray for revival. But let us go out there, not Bible thumping. Let us go with humility, with love, with a listening ear, and know that people are hurting. And ultimately, it's not about LGBTQIA+. Ultimately, it's not about abortion. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and, and I am, and others, we're very pro-life in many ways. But it's not ultimately about abortion. Ultimately, the issue is where we stand in response to this God who's made himself known in creation, who's made himself known in our conscience, and now is making himself known in the preaching and the teaching and the sharing and the living out of the gospel in your lives. And so, my friends, this morning, where are you with God? Are you among those who have been washed and sanctified and justified by the blood of Jesus? Is God calling you today to a right relationship with him? Is he calling you out of your idolatry and immorality and saying, I can give you a new beginning through the power of the Spirit in the good news of Jesus Christ and what he did? That, my friends, is the good news. Let's believe it.